It's the 27th of January, 2015, and this is episode 182. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief at Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today, we've got another good one. Stay tuned during the break to learn how to win a free physical copy of the age of cryptocurrency, how Bitcoin and digital money are changing the global economic order out today. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Paul Vigna and Michael J. Casey, the two authors behind the just-released book, The Age of Cryptocurrency, How Bitcoin and Digital Money Are Challenging the Global Economic Order. Gentlemen, great to speak with you today. Thanks for having us. So before we dive in, do a little bit of a better job introducing yourselves than I've just done here for you. My name is Paul Vigna. I am a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. I've been at Dow Jones for 17 years, cover the markets, and I've been covering Bitcoin for going on two years now, I guess. I'm Michael Casey, also at the Wall Street Journal. Columnist, I generally cover you know global finance issues. But found my way into Bitcoin via my interest in, in currencies. And about a year ago now, I've, I've been covering it. Been a, a wild ride. So we're here talking about your new book, which is just coming out, I think, tomorrow as we, as we record this episode. You've been reporting on Bitcoin for about a year. How did that actually happen? How did that wind up being the part of finance that you wound up focusing on? And how did the BitBeat kind of come about? We haven't really seen many other mainstream financial publications do a specific coverage of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, and yet the Wall Street Journal really kind of jumped on. It actually was just a function of the fact that we were getting pitched more stories than we could possibly cover uh, (laughs) by... Sure, I'm not kidding. But by February of 2014, Mike and I were pretty much regularly on this. We were very far into working on and getting the book contract, and we were just getting pitched a ton of stories. And I finally said, you know what? Literally, I just said, we should just do a daily roundup. And that was it. And we said it to our editor, and he said, yeah, go ahead. That sounds like a great idea. It really came about that simply. It was just a matter of we have more than we can cover. Let's just start doing this as a daily thing. And we started then. Now it's kind of changed. I mean, now we're just, now the book stuff is, we're so busy with it. We really don't have time to do it every day. So we're trying to make it about twice a week now. So we've had to scale back a little bit. But in the beginning, that, that's really what it was. Well, so talk to me about the kind of change of perspective that you've had over time. Because this book is, I would say, and I'm curious for your perspective, I think this is a very positive book about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I do think that's the case. And we, we obviously want to come at this as the kind of uh, professional journalists that we are and therefore kick the tires on everything and take a look uh, at the flaws as, as much as the, as the positives. But what we're really trying to do is look at the technology as a foundation and a platform. And I think it's just hard to deny and even get some of the biggest skeptics out there admitting, of course, that the technology is pretty groundbreaking and quite revolutionary. So on that basis, we thought it was far more interesting to explore all the possibilities of the blockchain in that regard than than sort of like get locked into this sort of silly debate about, you know, whether the the, the currency should be worth this or that. And I think that's part of the changing perspective now is you're seeing people start to understand that this is a big part of of what Bitcoin's all about. And and as a result, you're getting kind of more mainstream interest in it. 
the funny thing is the, the, the whole idea for the book came about in the summer of 2013 when, you know, I'd been writing about it for a little while and, and realized there was enough material there for a book and realized that at that time nobody had written one and, you know, good Lord, why shouldn't I try to be the first to do it? Uh, and what's funny is how much, the, how much my perspective has changed since then. It went from thinking that this was kind of a, an interesting, almost quirky story and it can be well told and there's enough there for a book to thinking, wow, this is really, a, this is a revolutionary thing. This is really going to make a lot of change. To now I see it as, as, I don't even see it as revolutionary anymore so much as I see it as evolutionary. I almost see this as an inevitable next step in how money is, is handled and how money is, is done, to not be quite so articulate. But I see this as much more of just this is the next natural step I think by the end of our writing process, I think if we wrote this book in another six months or in another year, it would be a very different book. Because by the end of it, I think we had come to almost see Bitcoin differently. And the book became different to the point where what we end up, we end up with one chapter, Mike, that really kind of talks about the whole 2.0 thing. And I think that now is probably the most important part of the whole thing. Yeah, where Bitcoin goes beyond its utility as a currency. So it's just, my viewpoint on this has changed a lot over the last two years. We've definitely been in this cycle for a while now where, you know, the ideas have all been out there. And, you know, like today, today we just saw that Coinbase is coming out with a fully licensed exchange in 24 states that has the backing of, you know, New York Stock Exchange and all these other big names associated with it. And again, that's not a project that just started, you know, yesterday. That's a project that's probably been in the works for over a year. So it, it feels like, sure. you know, there's just right. this, there's this turn that goes on and, you know, we're starting to see these books come out. You know, when, when did you say that you started working on yours? In the spring, really. I mean, it's when we started right. working on it. We had the, you know, the idea. We started thinking about it before that. Right. Yeah. The, the proposal kind of was put together in February, um, more or less. And then, you know, right. finally got working on it with a, with a book contract, I think, you know, late April, probably. It's a bit of a mad rush to get it done in time because yeah. the, the publishing world moves at a lot slower pace than anything else. The book publishing is the world, so we had yeah. to w- work to their, their timetable. And one of the reasons why, we knew there were competing books coming on market, and we wanted to make sure that we were competitive time-wise mm-hmm. with those. Well, I think that you guys are definitely the first one out that's covering this kind of historical perspective on the actual people and the actual events that went down, whereas pretty much everybody else is still focused on the question of what is Bitcoin, how does it work, and these really kind of fundamental Mm-hmm. Nuts and bolts questions. When that really mm-hmm. isn't the book that you guys wrote. So, can you talk to me about that? You know, what was the process for both researching? You know, were you just going back through the history of the internet, or did you reach out to a lot of people for interviews, or what was the process of putting together this kind of uh, historical look at the first few years of Bitcoin? It was all that, really. I mean, it was a lot of book research, a lot of interviews. We talked to as many of the the cypherpunks as we could get our hands on. They don't all like to talk. So we didn't get to talk to all of them, but we talked to a lot of them, got a lot of firsthand stories. The one person that, that we were lucky enough to speak with, because he's since passed, was Hal Finney, who we contacted, I guess, in the fall of 2013. Uh, we had started talking to him, and we we're really fortunate to get to speak with him, having to go through his wife, Fran, because Hal, you know, he couldn't speak at that point. And they gave us access to his emails that he and the man who calls himself Satoshi Nakamoto had sent back and forth when they were just 
starting to set it up in January and February of 2009, we had access to firsthand documents like that and firsthand people like that. And that was just, it was, I feel very, very fortunate that we got to speak with Hal Finney. And then a lot of it was also book research and contacting the cypherpunks and, and reading some other secondhand, you know, some other uh, accounts of it. And we just put all that together. I think the history of it we wanted to, to point out was none of these things come out of thin air. There is right, no sort of right. so there's, there's a history to it. There's not just the history of the cypherpunks. The cypherpunks obviously were critical. But where did they come from? What is the framework? What is the context in which this thing arose? And, and we actually think that regardless of whether there was any deliberate attempt to tie this to 2008, that you can't really separate the development of Bitcoin from the financial crisis of 2008. So one of the things that we found very interesting to explore was the history of, of digital money within the actual financial establishment. So we had this story in there about how Citibank at some stage in the 90s, around the same time that David Chalm and a bunch of cypherpunks were trying to come up with their own digital currency, Citibank was trying to make its own as well. There was a big, big move in the 90s to try to come up with the technology that would be there to facilitate e-commerce. And as we know, the credit cards ultimately won. They figured out a way to do that online and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And interestingly, at that moment, you get the consolidation of Wall Street with commercial banking. The whole game changes and we end up with this sort of too big to fail banking model and credit cards online. And it all kind of blows up in 2008, quite fortuitously at the same time that, that Satoshi Nakamoto releases his white paper. So, you know, we just think that that historical context is critical. These things never come out of thin air. And understanding the movement, as we've described it in the book, because Bitcoin is much more than technology, it really is this countercultural movement, it is impossible without that historical context. You know, it's interesting. The countercultural movement, I think that, uh, you know, you're definitely right, but it seems like it's more layered than that almost. You know, I mean, we can talk about different factions that all find Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to be useful to themselves for their own various purposes, but really the the thing is is that there are like different groups that come in so that the, the group that contains a roger veer in it is different than a group that contains you know a brian anderson who does coinbase can you talk about that you know how did the community that was essentially creating bitcoin and, and nurturing it through its early years how did that change over time well yeah i mean you're right there are definitely different factions and it's funny because look if you step out of bitcoin for a second you realize it's still a pretty small thing and a pretty small community but it has grown rapidly, and there are people who have very, very different viewpoints within it. The thing that really, really caught my my attention early on was was that whole counterculture movement and that whole sort of rowdy, anti-establishment utopianism that you saw in a lot of the early adopters and a lot of the very idealistic people. And I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, I thought it was really, really something. Yeah, you know, I would sit here and I would collect Bitcoin songs and Bitcoin artwork, and, and I would look for these things. And I mean, not I don't have Bitcoin artwork on my walls, but I would just collect examples but of it. But you've heard and, Oda and Satoshi. We write about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, from, from John Barrett, who is one of your podcasters. Yeah. Uh, I love that song. It's great. It's a bluegrass song. I love bluegrass. You know, like it was just, it was that, that, that entire thing was fascinating no to me that you would have this people coming around a, a currency, around a technology like that. I thought that was just really fascinating. So you have that whole utopianism. You, you have the whole sort of just tech for tech's sake, you know, the geeks that were really the first guys who were doing it. And they come at it with their own perspective and their own interests. 
And then you have then you have the you know the, the Silicon Valley crowd, which came a little bit later. The the proverbial suits who started to smell an opportunity and came on board, and they're probably the most dominant part of it now. And now Wall Street. And and now Wall Street. So in a very short time, you have had extremely different groups of people all sort of get hooked by this thing. And they all, even though they may not agree with each other, they all reinforce each other. I think that speaks to the, the power of what this is as well. And then you have people from outside of it, like Michael and myself, journalists, and we are outside of it. I mean... You're right that this is a positive book overall because we think it's a very important thing. But, you know, we're not, we're not quote-unquote Bitcoiners. We're journalists trying to tell a story. To the extent that we wrote a book that the community is going to like, we're part of the community. But, you know, we're on the outskirts of that community because we have to remain objective because we are journalists. So you have that entire faction of people who are kind of on the outside looking in. So you just you really have a lot of different groups that have come together in a very short amount of time and have fueled this thing. Adam, I think one thing that is notable, though, amongst these different groups is, is the fact that, you, as you pointed out earlier on, there are these divisions of opinion there. And naturally, I think they come out of the differing vested interests, just a lot of, you know, the, of those, the kind that Paul described. But what seems to me the fault line here is this whole centralization versus decentralization mm. debate. And, and we, we try to address that in the book to some extent, you know, where... It seems to me that that's just inherently filled with tension because to make money, ultimately, there is a monopolizing process that needs to happen. Peter Thiel's new book that's caught so much attention focuses on this. This idea of that's what, that's what capitalism does. It seeks out monopolies. It's somewhere along the line to make money out of this decentralized platform. You need decentralizing institutions to land on top of it and start to extract it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how do you make it happen without causing all these problems and undermining the great breakthrough that the technology was. So I I, I think that story is just going to get richer and richer. And you do get these ideological divisions that emerge out of that. Obviously, a lot of hardcore libertarians who just want nothing to do with centralized authority in this. Um, And then you start bringing in the the regulators who are the ultimate centralizers. And to make it work and bring it mainstream... All of this action needs to take place in some shape or form, and it will be an ongoing negotiation, a kind of a conflict resolution process between these, right. these different factions. Yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll end up with some sort of broad adopted mainstream interest in this. How it shapes out, we don't know. But nonetheless, this noisy, competitive pool of voices that's, that's coming together to, to, to make this happen. If capitalism is the process of creating monopolies, then this is a very, very disruptive technology indeed, because it seems like, again, open source in general, but open source platforms that can do all of this stuff that normally we have to rely on. You know, I mean, I I, uh, read your article in the journal the other day. I loved the section where you compared what's happening in the background of a standard financial transaction going through the normal financial system compared to a Bitcoin transaction. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, the list of things was, was impressive for, 
for the conventional, you know, system and for Bitcoin, it was right. person to person, you know, there's a miner involved somewhere, but you don't have to care about mm. that. And, you know, right. and, and it costs almost nothing and takes almost no time. So, I mean, it just right. seems like, yeah. you know, when solutions like this are out there and they're not being monopolized by people, the technology at its core is not monopolized. I mean, I, I, I just can't, I'm trying, I'm still trying to understand what that could mean just for systems improving. I mean, just for like, as a, as a new baseline for functionality even of the, of the, of the existing system. It's in that sense, a challenge to capitalism as we know it. Right. I mean, and that's, what's really quite sort of powerful when you, when you kind of go through this thought experiment about where this technology could go, that's when you start to realize that it is phenomenally disruptive. Um, but at the end of the day, it's disruptive for the purposes of building an, an, another market-making model. And that's where, you know, the capitalists will find a way to make money out of it. But they're just going to have to go through a big disruptive process beforehand. But it's interesting when you, you, that you highlighted that particular example, because I was looking at you know, some of the comments that ran through on that, on that story. And people make this point. They say, well, hang on a second. You know, if you're going through just a few of these different players of credit card companies, the payment processes and the banks and so forth. Well, surely there's all these, this, all these bigger, larger group of players involved in Bitcoin because you have to go through all the miners and so forth. And it's this, it's this fundamental under, misunderstanding about what the concept of centralization and decentralization is. And I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done for people to comprehend why this is just a very different structure. Because I think people, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a certain argument being made by critics out there that all we've actually done with Bitcoin is to transfer this empowerment of the middle, which was previously, let's say, central banks who would get the seniorage with banks who would get basically excessive rents for the sake of processing transactions and just pulling that and giving it to these miners who themselves are becoming greater and more concentrated and more powerful. So there's that you know, somewhat articulate, I think, take on Bitcoin, I think, needs to be challenged because... because there's all the competing issues around the incentive schemes and, and the sort of self-correcting nature of Bitcoin that I think totally changed the dynamic completely. But there is a discourse that sort of, I think, needs to be addressed as we get through this. And it's going to be very interesting to see the way it plays out. How much of this do you yeah, think I, is a norming process? I mean, it seems like that's what you're saying to me, is that fundamentally the, the common objections and the more articulate common objections that you run into are ones that fundamentally misunderstand the concept. So it's sometimes difficult to, you know, to, to argue against the misunderstanding. So, I mean, do you think that's, this is just, a, you know, we just need to hear about it more? I think it needs to be better articulated, and, and, and we're, we're trying to help with that process to some extent. But I also do think there is an issue around, I mean, mining is a problem, right? Mining has, and it's not just outsiders who have pointed this out, obviously. There's an enormous amount of, of attention going on the concentration of mining when there's been an enormous amount of, of scams that have run through the mining business. There's somewhere along the line, I personally believe the innovative process that's been unleashed here is going to resolve this. So that's where I kind of have faith in this. It's not as if it's just there's no, there's no problem, there's nothing. I mean, if I was to point to one fundamental problem that is a challenge, it is the expensive, industrialized, and potentially, you know, energy-wasting mining industry and the concentration of power that has a kind of an undemocratic feel to it as well that needs to be addressed. If only for the sense of it being the right, you know, getting the right public image out there. It can't just be sort of dismissed as a misunderstanding. I think there's something fundamental that needs to be developed. I think the innovators will eventually get there. It'll take time. I think part of it too is 
People come to Bitcoin and they think that it's this fully formed thing. And then they compare that thing that they assume is fully formed to all these existing systems that are fully formed and have been around for centuries. And it really isn't, you know, and, and so they assume it's fully formed and they see the scams and the cons and they see the price and the fluctuations and they think, well, look at that thing. It stinks. Well, no, it's not that it stinks. It's that that's part of it. It's, it's growth. This is only six years old. This is still an experiment. This is still something that is being built. That's something I think people don't necessarily get. And I think, you know, you could see the price go down a lot more. You could see more problems. You could see the whole mining thing needs to be resolved. But all these things are not reasons that it can't work. It may not ultimately work. But, but those aren't reasons that it can't work. Those are just growing pains. Those are things that are going to happen. And you're going to see that. I think this thing probably has another five, ten years to go before it is really, really a mainstream product. And I think in some ways, I think in some ways 2013 was bad for Bitcoin in that it gave it too much attention, too much exposure, too much hype. And rather than building it quietly in the background and making sure they got it right, they were suddenly thrust out into the spotlight when they weren't really ready for it. And, you know, there were pros and cons to that. Your original point, Adam, that this is a challenge to capitalism is, I think, mostly right. This, this is a challenge to systems that have existed for a long time. And that doesn't mean that those systems were bad. It just means that those systems were the best we could do at the time. Now you have another new thing that has come along. And people see that as this great threat, which, again, it gets back to my point that I see this more evolutionary than revolutionary. It doesn't have to be a great threat. It's just the next thing. You know, you guys wrote a book about the kind of decentralized happenings, and a lot of stuff has happened in Bitcoin. A lot of stuff has occurred, and they've all been kind of driven by individuals doing things because they thought that it was the best thing for them to do at that particular time, or, you know, at least they, they decided to do it. Decentralization is baked into cryptocurrency by its nature. It's baked into Bitcoin by its nature. But is it a good thing in terms of having no permission structure, right? Is it good that anyone can say anything about Bitcoin? Because that means that someone can go out and build something incredibly innovative, but it also means that somebody can go off and do something illegal. So, I mean, on net, what do you think this is here? I have to believe that it's good. I mean, I, only because I just think that the wisdom of the crowd has proven itself through history to be the most constructive way to develop and innovate and achieve progress. The wider the base in terms of the ability to contribute to innovation, the better result you're going to get. You're going to get some messy failures in the middle of that and some really crazy ideas. But ultimately, you're going to get a, a much more powerful model than you will with everything concentrated. Now, there's a whole debate, obviously, that happens in Silicon Valley over this because, you know, Apple was sort of centralized, as was Microsoft, and then Linux is something else. At the end of the day, I think that that misses the point. It's the very fact that the internet itself and other aspects of the computing platform that were effectively open source, that people could get in and use and take and, and build and imagine new things for. It really forged this phenomenon that is now a, a critical part of our lives. As open as it is, the better it will be, the more robust it will be, the greater the number of apps that will be created. And sure, there'll be lots of failures, but it's just part of the process. You know, you talk, Adam, about law and, you know, is this a challenge to capitalism? It's a challenge to law, too, if you think of law as a system of creating good for society. 
and law is something too that is it was the best system that we could come up with and it's it's got hundreds of years and a legacy but you are now starting to see systems and bitcoin is you know you can look at bitcoin as part of a wider tech revolution you talk about crowdfunding and and crowdsourcing and the sharing economy and all these other things that are racing out ahead of the laws that we have on the books and you know you say is it good or is it bad it's not necessarily good or bad yet it's just it is it's beyond what we've even conceived of yet This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is global. That's G-L-O-B-A-L. Global. You've got until the 31st of January to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Today's episode, in addition to being sponsored by CryptoKit, received support from the FoldingCoin project. FoldingCoin is a token built-in counterparty that rewards people who fold proteins using a program called Folding at Home, with time they donate from their computer. Earlier this month, they rolled out a feature called Merged Folding, which lets users pick an additional type of token to receive as well as FLDC when they fold. The idea is that while counterparty-based tokens aren't traditionally mined, Running software like Folding at Home is very similar to mining in terms of being a passive activity anyone can do in any amount to help the broader mission that occupies computer resources so it's not just free. Robert sent over a note that's too long to read, but they're basically making the argument that for the vast amount of altcoins that would be created, almost all of them should be created on a platform like Counterparty. And with tools like those being developed and offered by the FLDC crew to solve the problem of distribution for you. It's interesting, too, because the FLDC crew is using technology that we've built at Tokenly and built into the LTB coin platform in order to do this secondary distribution. So it's a platform being built on top of a platform being built on top of a platform. And, you know, even Counterparty, the lowest layer of that platform, is still very experimental at this point. They've already had some takers. Scott Coin and PowCoin have jumped on now. If you want to learn more, visit FoldingCoin.net. Episode 181 also received support from a longtime LTB listener who asked that we share his family medical fundraiser going on now. From HealingHodgesFund.com, quote, On January 27, 2014, my son Doug Hodges was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. After a long year of treatments and countless prayers, we've been blessed with the news that Doug is cancer-free. However, his recovery is ongoing as he faces more surgeries and more bills in addition to those that have already been mounting throughout the year, end quote. You can visit HealingHodgesFund.com to learn more. They accept Bitcoin donations as well as conventional payment options, and there are several vacation raffles located in sunny Arizona for those local or inclined. Once again, the address to learn more or to donate is HealingHodgesFund.com. That's Healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G, Hodges, H-O-D-G-E-S, Fund, F-U-N-D.com, HealingHodgesFund.com. 
And of course, if you'd like to support the Let's Talk Bitcoin show beyond tipping, you can visit letstalkbitcoin.com and click the sponsor button at the top of the page to see your options. Okay, last thing. So we've got three copies of the Age of Cryptocurrency to give away. Here's how it's going to work. On Saturday, the 7th of February, we're going to look back at the past week of users on letstalkbitcoin.com. That's next week. And anyone in the top 100 most active, non-content creating users will be eligible to win a copy. You also need to live in the continental United States in order to redeem this. On the 8th, we'll draw three names from that group, and winners will be given a token that can be redeemed in the LTB sponsor system for a copy of the book, shipped direct to you so long as it's redeemed within about a week or before the 14th of February. If you win the token and don't want the book or aren't in the United States, it's a token. You can give it to anyone you want who is eligible, and they can claim the prize. And how do you get in the top 100 most active non-content creating users on the platform? Leave good comments, receive likes or upvotes on your post, enter magic words from fresh podcasts like the one you heard earlier, that sort of thing. All right, that's enough out of me. Thanks for listening. The rest of today's episode is a set of selected readings from the age of cryptocurrency. Enjoy. Parisa Ahmadi was in the top of her class at the all-girls Hatifi High School in Herat, Afghanistan. Her family was initially against her enrolling in classes being offered by a private venture that promised to teach young girls internet and social media skills, and even pay them for the efforts. Here in Afghanistan, a woman's life is limited by her rooms, walls, and school, she wrote in an email. In Afghanistan, girls are not exposed to the internet, not at home, and not at school. That's the way it might have stayed, too if Ahmadi hadn't persisted. She was a top student, and she wanted to take even more classes. In her mind, that was a reason enough. She pressed her family, by her own admission, a lot. The venture backing these classes is the Film Addicts, a U.S.-based arts group that uses social media and an online site to pay the 300,000 bloggers and filmmakers who contribute their work. Film Addicts ended up in Afghanistan by way of its direct affiliation with the Women's Addicts, a digital literacy program set up in conjunction with Afghan businesswoman Roya Mahbub, which now educates 50,000 girls in schools across Afghanistan. Mahbub is something of a celebrity. Named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine, she runs a software company called Afghan Citadel, is one of the few female CEOs in Afghanistan, and has made education for Afghani women her central cause. The Women's Annex sets up its classrooms in local high schools, and the classes are taught by women. Because of this last feature, Amadi's family finally relented and let her sign up. Amadi started taking classes in 2013. She and her classmates were learning about the World Wide Web, social media, and blogs. A movie lover, who also loved to write about the movies that moved her, she began posting on a blog, and its members responded positively to her reviews earning her the first real income of her young life. Still, one of the other things that most girls don't have in Afghanistan is a bank account. If the Afghani teen ever had any money, she had to transfer it to her father's or brother's bank accounts, and that's simply the way it is for most girls where she lives. In this sense, she was lucky. For many women from her background, male family members block them from access to their funds 
treat the money as their own. Amadi's luck would change in early 2014. The film Annex's New York-based founder, Francesco Rulli, aware of the difficulty faced by women like Amadi and frustrated by the transaction costs he incurred in sending relatively small amounts of money around the world, implemented a sweeping change to the film Annex's payment system. He would pay his bloggers in Bitcoin, the digital currency that had seemed to come out of nowhere in 2013, with a small, fiercely dedicated band of tech-minded, libertarian-leaning digital utopians acting as its standard bearers and swearing to anybody who'd listened that it was going to change the world. Ruli, driven by a philosophy that's a sort of bootstrap capitalism, soon got Bitcoin and gleaned the advantages it could have for people like Ahmadi, who was one of more than 7,000 young Afghani women listed as paid contributors to the film Annex. Bitcoins are stored in digital bank accounts or wallets that can be set up at home by anyone with internet access. There is no trip to the bank to set up an account, no need for documentation or proof that you're a man. Indeed, Bitcoin does not know your name or gender, so it allows women in patriarchal societies, at least those with access to the internet, to control their own money. The importance of this cannot be overstated. These women are building something that is theirs, not their fathers or brothers. While not a panacea, this blast of cutting-edge 21st century technology offers real promise as a way to help unshackle an entire swath of the human population. Many film annex contributors in the United States, the United Kingdom, Italy, and other rich countries grumbled about the inconvenience of the digital currency. Few businesses, online or otherwise, accepted it for payment, and to many, the whole thing seemed dodgy. The complaints aren't unique to film annex contributors. To many people, Bitcoin seems like a half-baked scam, some scheme to sucker fools out of their money. Moreover, Amadi contends with the same issues related to Bitcoin that her peers in other countries had grumbled about. In particular, that the options for spending it are still limited, especially in an economy as underdeveloped as Afghanistan's. To deal with such problems, the Film Annex set up an e-commerce site in 2014, allowing its members to trade bitcoins for gift cards from global sites such as Amazon that will ship to Kabul, Herat, and other Afghan cities. In effect, the Film Annex is creating its own self-enclosed bitcoin economy, an approach it reinforced by trading, changing its trade name to Bitlanders. Amadi used her bitcoins to buy a new laptop. Only a few years ago, this would have been impossible. She credits bitcoin with teaching us how to be independent and how to decide by our own, and best of all, how to stand on our own feet. It's allowed her to ponder a future in which she isn't merely an appendage to the men in her life, a future in which she can chart her own course. I see myself an educated and active female doctor in the future, she said. choose this passage because it's one that has a personal story in it for me about a place that means a lot to me, Argentina, where I lived for six years. But it's also because I think it's illustrative of the problem of trust and the importance of that as it pertains to the functioning of a monetary system and of a society in general. That problem, or rather the lack of trust, has meant that Argentina, which was once the world's seventh richest country, is now ranked somewhere in the order of 80th. So here goes. My family and I spent six and a half happy years in Buenos Aires. 
sunshine, steak, Malbec wine, all rounded out the experience. The best part was the friends we made, people who would give you bear hugs, who would always go out of their way to help you, and who thought nothing of taking a four-hour lunch to engage in intense conversation about the state of the world. But mine was a love-hate relationship with their country. For all of Argentine's passionate embrace of friends and family, the society is in permanent war with itself. This is manifest in the dog feces littering Buenos Aires sidewalks, the graffiti defacing the city's once beautiful Parisian architecture, and the interminable traffic jams caused by drivers' unwillingness to yield. The country's bitterly divided politicians espouse competing outdated ideologies, but in truth their loyalty lies with a unifying corrupt political system installed by Juan Domingo Perón half a century ago. Peronism's system of Machiavellian power has trapped Argentine politics in a vicious cycle of short-sightedness and corruption, a failure that has left Argentines with zero faith in their governments. Skipping taxes is the norm. Why, people reason, would you pay crooks who will steal your money? In this environment, self-interest constantly asserts itself and the country's deep pool of natural resources is squandered. Bucket loads of money will be made in short multi-year bursts by those savvy enough to ride the pump-and-dump schemes that masquerade as policies, but that only means the economy rushes towards an oncoming cliff every 10 years or so. I arrived in Argentina in early 2003, right when the last such crisis was barely subsiding. Banks, which were still keeping people's savings frozen in accounts that the government had forcibly converted from dollars to devalued pesos, had closed their downtown branches in steel plates to protect their windows from the barrages of bricks hurled by protesting depositors. When I left in 2009, the next crisis was brewing. Inflation was pushing toward 30% a year, but the government was openly lying about it, an act of bad faith that only made Argentines mistrust their currency further and led businesses to hike prices preemptively in a self-reinforcing cycle. People were slowly withdrawing pesos from banks again, and the government was putting restrictions on purchases of foreign currencies, which, predictably, further undermined confidence in the national currency. This cat-and-mouse game, as Argentines knew too well, was destined to end badly. It also complicated our departure. A year after we left, we finally sold the lovely apartment we'd bought in the leafy Buenos Aires suburb of Palermo. But when I returned to the city to close the deal, it was now difficult to get our money out of the country. Residential property in Argentina has historically been sold in dollars, literally physical greenbacks. History has made Argentines wary not only of their own currency, but also untrusting of checks, money orders, or anything else that requires the provision of credit. Cold, hard dollar notes can cut through all that. That's what our buyers wanted. Reluctant to wire money to our US bank account, they wanted to do things in that old traditional way. They suggested we complete the deal at a Casa de Cambio in Buenos Aires' financial district, one of numerous exchange houses that help Argentines manage their complicated financial affairs. The Casa would take our newly obtained cash and credit our US bank account. Easy. What could possibly go wrong? With shiny lobbies, Victorian style insignia and names conveying integrity and security, these exchange houses can look similar to bank branches, but they operate outside the banking system. In addition to swapping dollars for pesos, they manage a network of accounts to shift money overseas at lower cost than bank wires. Now that the government was placing strict constraints on offshore bank wires, these places were in demand as convenient extra-official money transmitters. I was uncomfortable with this seemingly shady option, but Miguel, my closest friend in Buenos Aires, told me that this Casa de Cambio handled his business weekly in fully legal transactions with his associates overseas. He trusted them fully, and I trusted him. 
This was the way things worked in Argentina. You trusted whom you knew. And to resolve your business affairs, you frequently leaned on those relationships more than you relied on the legal protection of a corrupt judicial system. To be certain, however, I had an initial meeting with the Casa de Cambio in which I was assured that the overseas transfer would be fully verifiable and legal since we would have the real estate contract as backing documentation. Satisfied, I agreed to the buyer's plan. Days later, eight people gathered in one of the firm's sealed rooms to complete the closing. Two staff members, the couple buying our apartment, one of their fathers, who was paying for it, an official escribano, or notary public, required by law to authenticate the settlement, Miguel and I. A man entered carrying ten or so stacks of bills and gave them to me. I'd never had my hands on so much cash, but was still struck by how small $280,000 packed down to was counted by staff from the Casa de Cambio, after which the signing of the transfer papers began. Once the Escribano had ascertained that all was above board and fair, he and the father bid their farewell and arrangements of the international transfer began. Suddenly, a staff member rushed in, hurriedly yelling, You can't do it! This has to go through the banking system! I looked at Miguel and it sank in. The staff had misunderstood a key documentation requirement under the ever-changing Argentine foreign exchange laws. Or perhaps the conspiratorial Argentine in me was now kicking in. We'd been set up. Why did this happen after the Escribano had left and signed over the property? Either way, we were stuck. These were my options. I could gather up the money, our life savings, and take them across town. In what? A backpack? In my socks? And hope the local bank branch at which I'd maintained a mostly inactive account to pay my electricity bills would happily accept a massive stack of dollars, convert them into pesos for a fee and at a confiscatory exchange rate, and then immediately convert them back into dollars for another fee and at another expensive exchange rate before wiring the money to my bank for a bigger fee. We were facing security risks and some $15,000 more in costs, assuming the plan would fly with the bank's compliance officers. Or, the Casa de Cambio offered... I could complete the deal with them, but without the documentation I'd been promised. The institution would take my money, and an agent overseas would deposit the equivalent amount in our account. But I would receive no paper record of ever having handed over any money. I would have to trust, that word again, that 24 hours later I could call my bank and ascertain that the money was en route to my account, although it would take three days before the credit actually registered. I thought hard about it. Tens of thousands of Argentines did such transactions every day. To them, it was ironically a more trustworthy method of exchanging value than dealing with a banking system that had repeatedly robbed them of their saving. More important, Miguel, the man I trusted more than anyone else in Argentina, trusted this group of people to look after his accounts. He did so in a more transparent, above-board way than I was contemplating, but he dealt with them regularly. Indeed, the Casa de Cambio needed to maintain Miguel's trust. The confidence of their customers was the foundation of their business. On the other hand, I was unlikely to be a repeat customer. I reluctantly agreed to the unofficial transaction. All the exchange house could offer me as a record was a cut-off piece of ticker tape from a basic receipt printing calculator that simply showed numbers in text. The total amount transferred, minus the fee, and nothing else. I misplaced it that very evening. The next day, Miguel and I returned to the Casa de Cambio to get a special code with which my bank could trace the payment. The gentleman we were supposed to meet wasn't there, or so we were told by the security guard looking after the heavily fortified entrance to the back offices. As my blood pressure spiked, I asked to see another staff member. The guard called him, then relayed his message. The money was already deposited in my account. I was incredulous. It was supposed to take three days. My heart raced. Were they lying? Had I been swindled? Nervous beyond belief, I went outside to the street and called an agent at my bank. The reply came back. 
Yes, Mr. Casey, the money is in your account. Miguel and I bear hugged. Thanks for listening to episode 182 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by CryptoKit.com, FoldingCoin.net, and HealingHodgesFund.com. That's H-E-A-L-I-N-G-H-O-D-G-E-S-F-U-N-D.com. Content for today's episode was provided by Paul, Michael, and Adam. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.